Welcome to Food Chat, a weekly show that's all about food production, including farming, ranching, processing, and basically all things involved in getting food from the field to your plate. Now, let's get you reconnected to your food, and here are your hosts, Greg Bloom and Chef Jackson Lamb. Talk about an uphill battle, 2,000 acres of beans and cattle. He don't ever get rattled. He just goes to the sun goes down. Welcome to Food Chat. This is Chef Jackson Lamb along with my co-host Greg Bloom. Food Chat is all about reconnecting you to food. And it's on Wednesday every week at 12:30. So, anyway, Greg Bloom, welcome. Yeah, glad to be here. Wow, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, and uh, we are going to talk today about the mega trends, the trends that we have seen past, present, and we're going to even predict some for the future. So I thought I would just start off the show today, Chef Jackson, by asking you, what trends have you seen in your 30-year career in the food industry? Greg, that's kind of a loaded question. Let's work it backwards just for a second. Okay. You know, you and I are both voracious readers, magazines, periodicals, trade journals. Yep. And I'm finding that a lot of trends that we're seeing, what was old is now new. Yeah. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of old school things coming back that we haven't seen in years. Right. But... Let's get back to your original question of let's go back 30 years and what are some of the trends that we had seen over the years? Well, one that I can think of is when I first started selling food in the Denver metro area in 1991 was there were a lot more food distributors. So I worked for a food manufacturer and we didn't deliver directly to retail stores or to restaurant operators. So we had to go through a distributor. So we didn't have to go to the big guys like Cisco or Shamrock and, you know, uh, beg to get in there. They wouldn't have brought us in because we were too small. But there was a lot of little family-owned distributors back then, Donson's, Giambrocco, Altamira, a lot of little ones that you could go and talk to, and they'll say, sure, you know, you go out and hustle and get a couple restaurants. Go, go get five restaurants that want your product. We'll bring it in, you know. Those days are long gone. Yeah. And those uh, little guys are gone. They either went out of business or they got sold by, sold to the bigger guys, you know, efficiencies and economies of scale. And so today it's much harder if you're a food manufacturer. Let's just say you've got a great sauce idea and you want to, you know, sell that sauce to some restaurants. You're going to even get a commercial kitchen going or have it co-packed for you. Getting into distribution, it's a lot harder than it used to be. So that's one that I've seen. What about you? What's one that you, you noticed from uh, when you first started? You know, when I got out of um, college in uh, the last century, my degree was in hotel restaurant administration, and I couldn't wait to get out into the industry. What we saw then as an industry and what we see today has changed tremendously. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a great example. I can remember in the 1980s working here in Denver, and you know, you're doing 200, 300 dinners a night, and all of a sudden, here comes a ticket. It's a party of six. They want the food to go. Oh, what a pain in the neck this is going to be. To-go food? You hated those to-go orders. What an inconvenience. Mm -hmm. Look where we are today. In fact, I think we read in the nation's restaurant news, you know, some restaurants are doing in excess of 50% of their sales volume in to-go food. 
And, you know, COVID brought us that, but because of circumstances, we have evolved. And that's, that's a trend where we didn't really like the to-go food way back when, and now it's, it's really a survival mechanism for so many of the restaurants. Yeah, I'm sure some of that had to do with COVID, but even without COVID <clears throat> and post-COVID, restaurants today do thrive and need that to go. And now you pull up to a chain account or any restaurant, really, and there's two or three or four spots right up front said these are parking spots are for to-go orders only. Let me read you this list into the current edition of the Nation's Restaurant News, which I got in the mail yesterday. So number two on here, you'd, you'd think, oh, yeah, they do a lot of to-go Chick-fil-A, right? Okay, but what about this one? Number three? Bonefish Grill. That's not a to-go place that you would think like fast food or, you know, but Bonefish Grill and, and also Maggiano's Little Italy. Tremendous to-go. Just to your point. Yeah, that's, that's really evolved, hasn't it? So. Well, we haven't seen that. And it really, we looked at it as an inconvenience, but now the whole industry uh, relies upon it. Right. But let me ask you about another one that I think you've probably seen. Uh, I noticed that Today, there are very few culinary schools, like Johnson & Wales, closed. Yep. Um, some of the associations that were really thriving, and boy, back in the day, when I first got in the food business, you wanted to join the ACF. That's where you met all the chefs. That's where all the action was. That was the cool place to go. And now, uh, not so much. So the, the industry has changed a lot in how chefs get trained. And you, you know, you're, you've spent your whole career training people for the industry, not just the culinary side, but the business side of it. So tell us a little bit about what you've seen as far as that. Well, when we really look in the rearview mirror, the art institutes, they had 45 schools. I think they only have four now. They're all gone. The Cordon Bleu schools, there was 12 of them. There's only one right now. Johnson and Wales here in Denver, huge school, gone. Okay. The Food Network debuted in 1995, and that got everybody going. You know, in fact, they'd really changed the type of customers that came into restaurants. You watch three or four section, sessions of the uh, the Food Network, and you're an expert. Now you're a foodie. Oh, come on. Now hey, you, you're qualified. Hey, I know all the buzzwords. So as a result, there was a major change there as well. Well, because of the Food Network and, and bringing food into everybody's living room, all of those culinary schools thrived. Right. Okay, they, they're booming. You know, I was kind of watching the Food Network the other day, and I'm watching, I won't mention who the host was, but it's a food show, and they're pushing shopping carts around a, a, a supermarket. Right. So when we see the culinary schools have fallen apart, even the culinary shows have fallen apart, what the heck is going on out there? You asked about training. I have to give props to Google. Boy, if there's anything you want to look up, you can go to Google because it's all out there. Yeah, and YouTube, too. YouTube has the second largest search engine. Well, yeah, yeah. and, and they're, they're, they're all connected. They're yeah. cousins that tied at the hip, that's right, for sure. Right, Well, another thing I think that uh, was the demise of the culinary schools is like all higher education, it just got to be so expensive. These chefs, friends of mine, went to culinary school, come out looking for, you know, an entry-level career working at a restaurant. You know, they don't start you at six figures. And yet, you've got a $200,000 student loan debt to pay off because those culinary schools were fifty grand, sixty grand. So that just wasn't sustainable anymore to do that. So that's, why I think, one reason that. But so how, do, how do restaurant chefs now get trained? Is it, it there's, the schools are gone. 
So how do you, if you want to be a chef, you're an aspiring chef, you think you might enjoy a career, there's some great careers in the food service business. How do you get going? You know, I, Greg, I don't think they're looking at resumes anymore. I think that, you know, you want to go out and work at a given restaurant. You know, the word stage French uh, looks like stage, but that's a common term that we use in the industry where, hey, I want to come in and show you my stuff. Can you come in and do a stage on Wednesday night? That means come in and work for free for three or four hours. Show us your stuff. So I think that we've actually kind of gone backwards here and we've gone old school where we're really learning on the job. Right. I think that you can only get so much off of YouTube, all right? The culinary schools are gone. I will say at Metro State, we're kind of pulling away from food service altogether, getting more into event management, hotel management, and hospitality leadership. So that really does leave a, a void in where that training or cooking Oso Buco comes from. I was at a Latin Supper Club dinner last week, and it was the first time I'd ever been through a five-and-a-half-hour dinner. Now, that sounds like an awfully long time to eat, but we knew ahead of time it was going to be that long. And there's a lot of time in between the courses. So you can get up and walk around and, you know, do take that beautiful dish that you got served and take it somewhere and take a picture of it to throw it on social media. But between every course, 11 courses, the chefs, there was 11 of them, would come out and talk about the dish the uh, history of the dish, the inspiration for the dish, and the food quality. So you knew a lot about it. It was just fascinating. But one of the chefs there said he got his start as a dishwasher. And he said, don't forget, guys, and he's talking to mostly people in the room in the restaurant industry, that the most important person in the house is the dishwasher. Because if the dishes don't get cleaned well and efficiently, you're out of business. So don't disrespect the dishwasher. Make sure that guy's getting tipped, you know, because he's... But this guy worked his way up. To your point, he didn't go to culinary school. He started as a dishwasher. Then he showed up an hour before he was supposed to, and he stayed an hour after he was supposed to, and he just learned from these guys cooking. And now he's a master chef. In fact, he has cooked for the Queen of England, the past Queen of England, and, and his international chef. So to your point, there's still a way to get trained. It's probably going to be on-site training, right? Absolutely right. The other uh, point that you just brought up, you know, Latin cuisine dinner, five and a half hours, 11 courses. The Z generation doesn't have that kind of time available. Five and a half hours for dinner, I can't spend that much time. In fact, when you really see it, that's why the fast casual segment of dining has boomed because people, they don't dine anymore. They eat. They eat. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's like, and, and so in other words, I think that, um, you know, on the show Blue Bloods, I don't know if you watch it. I've watched but, a few episodes. Well, you know, it's, it's always about the Sunday dinner, the family Sunday dinner. Right, right. And unfortunately, we don't slow down enough to do that. In fact, it came out in the news here locally last, uh, last week where the lack of family dinners really is uh, helping deteriorate the nuclear family right so it's uh there's nothing like having family dinner that's for sure yeah. i do it you know we have a tradition at my house monday night football my sons come over it's a uh, it's burgers one week it's pizza the next week it's nothing gourmet it's football food but it's a tradition that we do and they really enjoy it 
Let me ask you about when you first started your career in the restaurant industry, were you working for independent family-owned companies or were you working for chains? Ooh, that's a great question. I got out of college and I started working for a, a chain called Steak and Brew, mm-hmm. similar to Steak and Ale. In mm-hmm. fact, they sued each other because of name infringement. But we had 118 restaurants. Well, the cool thing about that is you learn the corporate structure. And the way Steak and Brew was set up is probably the way Applebee's and Chili's and Bennigan's is set up, just from a corporation perspective, from an ordering perspective, supply chain, uh, payroll, et cetera, et cetera. And so as a result... um, I lost where I was going there well, for a I second. Well, you started then working for a chain restaurant. Oh, so anyway, and I worked with them, really learned systems, mm-hmm. okay? And, you know, I can't, I can't teach those types of systems at a class at Metro State because we don't have the volume to put against right. what I'm teaching. So, um, so as a result, it, uh, with the volume... I'm getting lost here. No, no. I, uh, but you did end up working for an independent operator. You worked at, uh, was Le- it? Learned yeah. the system, learned how to take inventory, learned how to do right. all that. Left there and went to an independent operator that had seven restaurants. Are they still in town? Are they still in no, business? No, uh, that was in New York, and they're all closed they're at gone. this point in time. Yeah. They're gone. Yeah. But, um, you know, working for them, it was a great experience. But the... The value of working for the big chain and learning systems yeah. has affected me in every other job I've had, right. which is really great. And I think that um, mm-hmm. that really is the big corporations. There's a great uh, question or answer regarding your question regarding training. Yeah. You know, you get into an Applebee's, Chili's uh, type of environment. Any of those chains. Yeah. They've got a complete training program where, yeah, you're going to start as a dishwasher. I did start as a dishwasher at the local Elks Club when I was 14 years old. Wow. Yeah. Wow. See, that worked. starting at the bottom, so, it worked well. But what was old is now new again, and people are doing the same type of a training. Well, that's another reason why you really don't need a $200,000 uh, culinary degree from a prestigious culinary university out of New York or Denver or any culinary uh, area. Because if you go to work for a chain, they're going to train you their way anyway. That's absolutely and, and, correct. And you, if you're not involved in the creative new menu team, uh, you know they don't really want the people at the uh, at the uh, franchisee level changing the menu anyway. So you don't really get a chance to be creative. Look, well, I think I'll cook it this way. No, you're going to cook it. You know, KFC doesn't really want you messing with the recipe for the chicken right now. I don't think they want the the guy with the John. You know, <laughs> so. If you want to get into the restaurant industry, there's still some great opportunities, great paying opportunities, traveling opportunities, but it's probably going to be with a chain, wouldn't you say? You brought up a very good point. I can remember working at the Art Institute. I was on the opening faculty there. We opened in uh, 1994, all right, just before the Food Network debuted. And I can remember, you know, we'd have... A restaurateur say, hey, I, I, we want to hire your students. Let's do some interviews, et cetera, et cetera. Biggest complaint I would get from uh, owners is, you know, your students come out of school. They're just full of energy. And the first thing they want to do is change my 20-year-old menu that made me popular in the first place. Right. And, you know, so that's a, a great example of that. These kids wanted to get out there and just show their prowess. But... 
it, it's like at Pagliacci's. Well, wait a second. The minestrone soup's been the same for 30 years. We're not changing it. Yeah, that's so, what people come in for. <laughs> so <laughs> so right. as a result, that was one of the complaints that I did see that um, the, the kids were trying to do their own, which I can appreciate. That shows that they're just trying to push their limits. Chef, let me ask you this question. Do you think there's a future left for the independent restaurant operator? We've seen a lot of them go out of business. The one that you started with in New York, they're gone. Yeah. A lot of the ones that you worked with and for here in the Denver area are gone. A lot of the customers I used to sell uh, meat to, they're gone. Is there still room in the next decade or two for that independent family-owned restaurant operator? Oh, I think so. I, but I think when we look across the landscape... There will always be independent restaurants. Now, will there always be fine dining? That's a question. You know, when we look at the various, the spectrums, the, the fine dining, the casual dining, the uh, um, fast casual uh, curbside pickup. You know, we've got all these different monikers there for our restaurants. I think we'll always have those independent restaurants. And the ones that will survive are the people who really have their heart in it. Okay, right. But I think that... Um, yeah, there are fine dining has almost priced themselves out of the market. Uh, you had mentioned earlier Maggiano's with all the to-go food that they do, but you and I also discussed how much money they spend on linen. Yeah, right. At all in all their restaurants, pretty big bill. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. it's a huge bill. So, so I think that you know when we look at fine dining from that perspective, I think the operators need to figure out how to lower their cost to stay in business. I have seen that the local operators that are still thriving, they've um, implemented technology as much as they can. Because let's face it, the chains have money to pay for apps to be developed, like the Starbucks app that most people have on their phone or the Chili's app or the Applebee's app, where you can just open your app, click on which store is your favorite store, which store is on your way home, what your normal you know order is, and then boom, 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 and you got dinner on your way home. is so convenient. Well, an independent operator might not have that technology implemented, but that platform is available by third parties now. So I think key to their success is implementing technology to keep up with the chains. Don't you agree? Absolutely. And you're right. The the chains have an advantage over the smaller mom and pops. You know, we're talking about independent restaurant operators, mom and pops. So as a result, sometimes they don't have those same advantages as the uh, as the big boys do. I hope they stay open because my uh, career in the future uh, d- depends upon that independent restaurant, whether it could be one or two or three stores. But the independent restaurant operator in Colorado, I can walk into and set a point with the chef or the decision maker for the food, and we can have a great talk. I can bring them through the meat plant where the meat is from, the beef, the bison, the lamb, whatever they're buying, They'll you know, show them the local option. And they're very eager to know the local option. They want to buy local, even if local costs them a little bit more than the out-of-state brand that's trucked in, frozen by the truckload, they want to buy it. But if I walk into a chain account, you name it, I'm wasting my time. I said, can I talk to the food service, uh, whoever makes your food decisions here? Uh, they're, they're in Chicago, Illinois, Atlanta, New York City, Palo Alto. They're not here. And right. you, you got to start, you know, by making a point with them. Well, basically, I'm wasting my time is my point. They don't want to buy local food. So very commonly, and I think people should know this, when you go into that chain account, you know, they can't take advantage of the fact that, for example, Colorado is a prolific beef-producing state. They can't buy the beef produced in Colorado because— Someone at the corporate office specced in beef from Minnesota, 
and everybody has to be using that beef so it's trucked frozen all across the nation to all these distribution points and then sent in frozen because you can't do fresh you know, on a national platform like that. And I go in and talk to the chain account restaurant, like, I got a better local patty for you. And they go, I know you do, but I can't touch it. I can't, I can't, I'm, it's, it's locked in. So that, that's one reason I hope, my point about this story is that people keep supporting that local restaurant operator because they can support the local economy and the chains cannot. Well, when you think about Olathe corn and Rocky Ford cantaloupe, right? Well, that's not what Applebee, Applebee's is buying. They're, they're buying stuff that's probably coming out of Texas or Florida just because that's what's been specced by the corporate office. Right. Yeah. And those big chains, too, they've got buying power. You know, they, they've got people that can call and negotiate. You know, sometimes I've heard that they buy um, – they make more money on the buy than the sell. I've heard that about the big distributors like, you know, the big powerhouse like Cisco, international company, that they make more money on the buy than sell because they buy so much they can buy – less expensive. Probably Costco and Sam's are the same thing. They can buy cheap because of their volume power. But the little local restaurant operator, you know, that has a house down the street from you, he can't do that. No. You know, he can't. He doesn't have So spend another buck and support that local guy off the menu is my point. You know, so, yeah. You know, um, we have a note here about social media um, and social media videos. Those but, are new. We didn't do that. We weren't doing that 10 years ago, 20 years ago. No, that's what it, it look at the TikTok stuff that's going on yeah, out there and, and, and people going into different restaurants and showing crazy food. Yeah. And the rage and Instagram videos where, you know, you put them to music now. Nobody wants to hear you talk. They just want to have a really cool song and a really 30 second because you're scrolling through thousands of cool videos. You know, you're competing with jumping whales and Icelandic icebergs, and now you've got your food dish. <laughs> no, it, it's kind of like uh, I don't have five and a half hours for, to eat. It's it, TikTok is fulfilling that. I don't have three minutes to watch a video, but I got 30, and that's exactly what happens. Right. And speaking of social media and social videos, when you started in the industry, were you, did you see concern from groups about the environmental impact of the food being served at the restaurant you worked at? Absolutely not. It wasn't even a, a question Maybe from an environmental perspective, and, and, and f- food waste wasn't even a big thing. It, it was more about recycling was really getting started in the 1980s. Glass, aluminum, paper, that was the big emphasis right now. Food waste, not even on the radar screen. Look where it is today. Right. It's almost number one. Right. Well, in the plant-based industry, the big hitters, Impossible and Beyond, I mean, they made a lot of splash when they first started five, six years ago. And one of their big you know, claims to fame was that they had a better environmental footprint than the counterpart meat, which they're trying to replace. But that's actually been like shown to be not true because you really can't, uh, you know. One, one of the trends we can talk about it kind of is the collapsing plant-based um, whole you know, economy right now is not doing well. You know, you see impossible and beyond shutting jobs, investors shutting, you know, that was really never consumer driven. It was, it was really driven by billionaires and venture capitalists and crowdfunding and everybody thinking that we're saving the planet, you know, in the new green religion uh, by eating this plant-based burger. But I think that people weren't fooled chef Jackson, because when they would read the ingredients on the package, you're starting to think, well, do I have these ingredients in my cupboard? And do I really know the environmental footprint of methancellulose or soy protein isolate? What is that? How do you isolate a soybean anyway? You know, you don't do that at home in your Vitamix. So 
what other what other future trends, Chef, do you think we're going to see here? You know, we we have, you know, twenty years to go probably, and you and I'll wrap up our. Our, our food service careers. So what other what other trends do you think we'll see in the future? You know, one of the things we're seeing right now, and the, the simple term is boards, but boards. really what we're seeing is charcuterie boards. Well, that started about two years ago, and, you know, COVID, uh, they started to introduce those things, and shareables, that's what that was all about. Shareables. But, boy, we're starting to see – well, I'll tell you what. I think that came about just because – you know, entrees were starting to burgers fifteen dollars, two burgers thirty dollars, charcuterie board fifteen dollars, shareable. So I think that the economy has introduced a way for restaurants to to bring in food items that are shareable, and then you just order more of them. That's all. I've been to a, a local restaurant in the last week where they have about eight different options on the boards that they serve. And that's all they serve. There's no pizza. There's no sandwiches. There's no, they're sticking with the one product, but they do it well. And so I think that's the big trend. Now, that's charcuterie boards, okay? But, you know, when we think about our, our, our vegetarians and our vegans out there, I'm seeing shareables such as, uh, uh, I shared with you earlier, big uh, uh, sheet pan, you know, your typical smaller sheet pan, smeared with hummus, with vegetables in there, baked off in the oven, served with pita chips on the side. Shareable. Yum. So I think that we're starting to see those types of things appear on menus just because I think people are foodies. Right. Well, you're right about the shareables thing. That's an increasing trend. I think we'll see it continue. You know, it used to be a shareable on a menu was at a chain restaurant. Calamari, flatbread, you know, something with cheese on it that's toasted, or chicken wings. Yeah. Well, now you go there. It's a whole page. They've got like 15 options there, and it's delicious food. Sometimes you can just eat three or four of those and share them, and that's it. Call yeah. it good. You know, they're expensive, too. You might spend $15, $20, $25 for each one, but, boy, are they tasty. So that's – and their thing is that I saw on social media last week on LinkedIn, and then I kind of followed the links through Twitter and followed the links through Instagram, but butterboards are the rage now. So – a mom who decided she can't afford charcuterie with this post-inflation economy that we're in. So and she's got four kids. So she's taking butter, whips it, uh, sprinkles it on a board, flattens it all out on her charcuterie board, which is just a wood board. But And then she sprinkles on the top some honey. She drizzles some honey. She drizzles some, uh, some hot sauce. And then she puts uh, edible flower petals all over it. And it was beautiful. And then you just serve it with crackers and and pita chips, and you've got a five, six dollar, maybe ten dollar shareable platter for your guests. So, great. and who doesn't like butter? Everybody likes butter. Well, you could do that with <laughs> butter's better. Butter, butter's back. Yeah. So, I think we'll see that more and more. Well, and I think these low cost shareables really have to be. Um, we have to be more creative about it because charcuterie is awesome, but it's expensive. You sure, know? you can't do it every week. So, yeah, butter's an option. Hummus, you mentioned. There's got to be some aspiring chef out there listening to the show. They're going to come up with a, a new trend, you know. Chef Jackson, we had a great show today talking about trends, past, present, and future. Thanks for joining the show. Food Chat. It's a pleasure. Hey, Food Chat's all about food production, and it is sponsored by Ranch Fresh Meats. Ranch Fresh Meats is a great local company that has found the best local bison, beef, chicken, lamb, and pork, and more. Go to ranchfreshmeats.com. Hey, sign up for our newsletter at ranchfreshmeats.com. We'll send you an email every week with a special 
Talk about an uphill battle. 2,000 acres of beans and cattle. But he don't ever get rattled. He just goes till the sun goes down. Hydraulic fluid on his jeans. Red dyed diesel and ten rows between. The views and opinions expressed on KLZ 560 are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of Crawford Broadcasting, the station, management, employees, associates, or advertisers. KLZ 560 is a Crawford Broadcasting God and Country station.